lovely to have you here at Fast Asleep. As always, our goal is to get you right off to sleep, but never waste your time doing it. If you're going to have to listen to something, let's have you listen to something of exceptional quality. So, again, Scotland provides us with our author for the next two episodes, Treasure Island, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, a child's garden of verses? No, no, none of those. Please tuck in and enjoy part one of Robert Louis Stevenson's The Body Snatcher. Oh, stop. You'll be fine. Every night in the year, four of us sat in the small parlor of the George at Debenham. The undertaker and the landlord and Fetz and myself. Sometimes there would be more, but blow high, blow low, come rain or snow or frost, we four would be each planted in our own particular armchair. Fetz was an old drunken Scotchman. Mm, Scotchman. A man of education, obviously, and a man of some property, since he lived in idleness. He had come to Debenham years ago, while still young, and, by a mere continuance of living, had grown to be an adopted townsman. His blue camlet cloak, made of camel hair, was a local antiquity, like the church spire. His place in the parlor at the George, his absence from church, his old crapulous, drunken, disrespectful vices were all things of course in Debenham. He had some vague radical opinions and some fleeting infidelities which he would now and again set forth and emphasize with tottering slaps upon the table. He drank rum, five glasses regularly, every evening, and for the greater portion of his nightly visit to the George, sat with his glass in his right hand in a state of melancholy, alcoholic saturation. We called him the doctor, for he was supposed to have some special knowledge of medicine and had been known upon a pinch to set a fracture or reduce a dislocation, but beyond these slight particulars, we had no knowledge of his character and antecedents. One dark wintry night, it had struck nine sometime before the landlord joined us, there was a sick man in the George, a great neighboring proprietor suddenly struck down with apoplexy on his way to Parliament and the great man's still greater ooh, London doctor had been telegraphed to his bedside. It was the first time that such a thing had happened in Debenham, for the railway was but newly opened, and we were all proportionately moved by the occurrence. He's come, said the landlord, after he had filled and lighted his pipe. He, said I, who? Not the doctor. Himself replied our host. What's his name? Dr. McFarlane, said the landlord. 
Fetz was far through his third tumbler, stupidly fuddled, now nodding over, now staring nasally around him. But at the last word, he seemed to awaken and repeated the name, McFarlane, twice. Quietly enough the first time, but with sudden emotion at the second. Yes, said the landlord, that's his name, Dr. Wolf McFarlane. Fetz became instantly sober. His eyes awoke, his voice became clear, loud, and steady, his language forcible and earnest. We were all startled by the transformation, as if a man had risen from the dead. I beg your pardon, he said. I'm afraid I haven't been paying much attention to your talk. Who? Who is this Wolf McFarlane? And then, when he had heard the landlord out, it cannot be, it cannot be, he added. And yet, I would like well to see him face to face. Do you know him, doctor? asked the undertaker with a gasp. God forbid, was the reply, and yet the name is a strange one. It were too much to fancy too. Tell me, landlord, is he old? Well, said the host, he's not a young man, to be sure, and his hair is white, but he looks younger than you. Mm. He's older, though, years older, but with a slap upon the table, it's the rum you see in my face, rum and sin. This man perhaps may have an easy conscience and a good digestion. Conscience, hear me speak. You would think I was some good old decent Christian, <laughs> would you not? But no, not I. I never canted. Voltaire might have canted if he'd stood in my shoes, but the brains, with a rattling flip, on his bald head. The brains were clear and active, and I saw and made no deductions. If you know this doctor, I ventured to remark, after a somewhat awful pause, I should gather that you do not share the landlord's good opinion. Fetz paid no regard to me. Yes, he said with sudden decision. I must see him face to face. Hmm. There was another pause, and then a door was closed rather sharply on the first floor, and a step was heard upon the stair. Oh, that's the doctor, cried the landlord. Look sharp, and you can catch him. It was but two steps from the small parlor to the door of the old George Inn. The wide oak staircase landed almost in the street, there was room for a turkey rug and nothing more between the threshold and the last round of the descent. But this little space was every evening brilliantly lit up, not only by the light upon the stair and the great signal lamp below the sign, but by the warm radiance of the barroom window. The George thus brightly advertised itself to passers-by in the cold street. Fetz walked steadily to the spot, and we, who were hanging behind, 
beheld the two men meet, as one of them had phrased it, face to face. Dr. McFarlane was alert and vigorous. His white hair set off his pale and placid, although energetic, countenance. He was richly dressed in the finest of broadcloth and the whitest of linen with a great gold watch chain. And the studs and spectacles mm, of the same precious material. He wore a broad folded tie, white and speckled with lilac, and he carried on his arm a comfortable driving coat of fur. There was no doubt, but he became his years, breathing as he did of wealth and consideration, and hmm, it was a surprising contrast to see our parlor sought, bald, dirty, pimpled, and robed in his old camlet cloak, confront him at the bottom of the stairs. McFarlane, he said somewhat loudly, more like a herald than a friend. The great doctor pulled up short on the fourth step, as though the familiarity of the address surprised and somewhat shocked his dignity. Toddy McFarlane, repeated Fetz. Well, the London man almost staggered. He stared for the swiftest of seconds at the man before him, glanced behind him with a sort of scare, and then in a startled whisper, Fetz, he said. You! Aye, said the other. Me! Did you think I was dead too? We! Oui are not so easy shut of our acquaintance. Oh, hush, hush, exclaimed the doctor. Hush, oh, this meeting is so unexpected. I can see you are unmanned. I hardly knew you, I confess at first, but I, I am overjoyed, overjoyed to have this opportunity. For the present, it must be a how-do-you-do and goodbye in one, for my fly, transport, is waiting, and I must not fail the train. But you shall, um, let me see, yes, you shall give me your address, and you can count on early news of me. We must do something for you, Fetz. I fear you are out at elbows. We must see to that for auld lang syne, as once we sang at suppers. Money, cried Fetz. Money from you? The money that I had from you is lying where I cast it in the rain. Dr. McFarlane had talked himself into some measure of superiority and confidence, but the uncommon energy of this refusal cast him back into his first confusion. A horrible, ugly look came and went across his almost venerable countenance. My dear fellow, he said, be it as you please, 
My last thought is to offend you. I would intrude on none. I will leave you my address, however. I do not wish it. I do not wish to know the roof that shelters you, interrupted the other. I heard your name. I feared it might be you. I wish to know if, after all, there was a god. I know now. There is none. Be gone. He still stood in the middle of the rug between the stair and the doorway. And the great London physician, in order to escape, would be forced to step to one side. It was plain that he hesitated before the thought of this humiliation white as he was. There was a dangerous glitter in his spectacles. But while he still paused, uncertain, he became aware that the driver of his fly was peering in from the street at this unusual scene and caught a glimpse at the same time of our little body from the parlor, huddled by the corner of the bar the presence of so many witnesses decided him at once to flee. He crouched together, brushing on the wainscot, and made a dart like a serpent striking for the door. But his tribulation was not yet entirely at an end, for even as he was passing, Fetz clutched him by the arm, and these words came in a whisper, and yet painfully distinct. Have you seen it again? The great rich London doctor cried out aloud with a sharp, throttling cry. He dashed his questioner across the open space, and with his hands over his head, fled out of the door like a detected thief. Before it had occurred to one of us to make a movement, the fly was already rattling toward the station. The scene was over like a dream, but the dream had left proofs and traces of its passage. Next day, the servant found the fine gold spectacles broken on the threshold. And that very night, we were all standing breathless by the barroom window with Fetz at our side, sober, pale, and resolute in look. God protect us, Mr. Fetz, said the landlord, coming first into possession of his customary senses. What in the universe is all this? These are strange things you've been saying. Fetz turned toward us. He looked us each in succession in the face. See if you can hold your tongues, said he. That man, McFarlane, is not safe to cross. Those that have done so already have repented it too late. And then, 
without so much as finishing his third glass, far less waiting for the other two, he bade us goodbye and went forth under the lamp of the hotel into the black night. We three turned to our places in the parlor with the big red fire and the four clear candles and we recapitulated what had passed. The first chill of our surprise soon changed into a glow of curiosity. We sat late. It was the latest session I have known in the old George. Each man before we parted had his theory that he was bound to prove, and none of us had any nearer business in this world than to track out the past of our condemned companion and surprise the secret that he shared with the great London doctor. It is no great boast, but I believe I was a better hand at worming out a story than either of my fellows at the George, and perhaps there is no other man alive who could narrate to you the following foul and unnatural events. In his young days, Fetz studied medicine in the schools of Edinburgh. He had a talent of a kind, the talent that picks up swiftly what it hears and readily retails it for its own. He worked little at home, but he was civil, attentive, and intelligent in the presence of his masters. They soon picked him out as a lad who listened closely and remembered well. Strange as it seemed to me when I first heard it, he was in those days well favored and pleased by his exterior. There was at that period a certain extramural teacher of anatomy whom I shall here designate by the letter K. His name was subsequently too well known. The man who bore it skulked through the streets of Edinburgh in disguise while the mob that applauded at the execution of Burke called loudly for the blood of, him, of his employer. But Mr. K was then at the top of his vogue. He enjoyed a popularity due partly to his own talent and address and partly to the incapacity of his rival, the university professor. The students, at least, swore by his name, and Fetz believed himself and was believed by others to have laid the foundations of success when he had acquired the favor of this meteorically famous man. Mr. K was a bon vivant as well as an accomplished teacher. He liked a sly illusion no less than a careful preparation. In both capacities, Fetz enjoyed and deserved his notice, and by the second year of his attendance, he held the half-regular position of a second demonstrator or sub-assistant in his class. In this capacity, the charge of the theater and lecture room 
devolved in particular upon his shoulders. He, Fetz, had to answer for the cleanliness of the premises and the conduct of the other students and it was a part of his duty to supply, receive, and divide the various subjects. It was a view to this last, at that time very delicate affair, that he was lodged by Mr. K in the same wind and at last in the same building with the dissecting rooms. Here, after a night of turbulent pleasures, his hand still tottering, his sight still misty and confused, he, Fetz, would be called out of bed in the black hours before the winter dawn by the unclean and desperate interlopers who supplied the table. He, Fetz, would open the door to these men, since infamous throughout the land. He would help them with their tragic burden, pay them for their sordid price, remain alone when they were gone with the unfriendly relics of humanity. From such a scene, he would return to snatch another hour or two of slumber to repair the abuses of the night and refresh himself for the labors of the day. Few lads could have been more insensible to the impressions of a life thus passed among the ensigns of mortality. His mind was closed against all general considerations. He was incapable of interest in the fate and fortunes of another, the slave of his own desires and low ambitions. Cold, light, and selfish in the last resort, he had the modicum of prudence, miscalled morality, which keeps a man from inconvenient drunkenness or punishable theft. He coveted, besides, a measure of consideration from his masters and his fellow pupils, and he had no desire to fail conspicuously in the external parts of life. Thus, he made it his pleasure to gain some distinction in his studies, and day after day rendered unimpeachable eye service to his employer, Mr. K. For his day of work, he indemnified himself by nights of roaring, blackguardly enjoyment. And when that balance had been struck, the organ that he called conscience declared itself content. The supply of subjects was a continual trouble to him as well as to his master. In that large and busy class, the raw material 
of the anatomists kept perpetually running out. And the business thus rendered necessary was not only unpleasant in itself, but threatened dangerous consequences to all who were concerned. It was the policy of Mr. K to ask no questions in his dealings with the trade. They bring the body and we pay the price, he used to say, dwelling on the alliteration quid pro quo. And again, somewhat profanely, ask no questions, he would tell his assistants, for conscience' sake. There was no understanding that his subjects were provided by the crime of murder. Had that idea been broached to him in words, oh, he would have recoiled in horror. But the lightness of his speech upon so grave a matter was in itself an offense against good manners and a temptation to the men with whom he dealt. Fetz, for instance, had often remarked to himself upon the singular freshness of the bodies. He had been struck again and again by the hangdog abominable looks of the ruffians who came to see him before the dawn. And putting things together clearly in his private thoughts, he perhaps attributed a meaning too immoral and too categorical to the unguarded counsels of his master. He understood his duty, in short, to have three branches, to take what was brought, to pay the price, and to avert the eye from any evidence of crime. One November morning, this policy of silence was put sharply to the test. He had been awake all night with a racking toothache, pacing his room like a caged beast or throwing himself in fury on his bed, and had fallen, at last, into that profound, uneasy slumber that so often follows on a night of pain, when he was awakened by the third or fourth angry repetition of the concerted signal. There was a thin, bright moonshine. It was bitter cold, windy, and frosty. The town had not yet awakened, but an indefinable stir already preluded the noise and business of the day. The ghouls had come later than usual, and they seemed more than usually eager to be gone. Fetz, sick with sleep, lighted them upstairs. He heard their grumbling Irish voices through a dream, and as they stripped the sack from their sad merchandise, he leaned, dozing, with his shoulder propped against the wall. He had to shake himself to find the men their money. And as he did so, his eyes lighted on the dead face. He started. He took two steps nearer with the candle raised. God Almighty, he cried. That is Jane Galbraith. The men answered nothing, but they shuffled nearer the door. I know her, I tell you. He continued. 
She was alive and hearty yesterday. It's impossible she can be dead. It's impossible you should have got this body fairly. Sure, sir, you're mistaken entirely, said the one man. But the other looked Thetis darkly in the eyes and demanded the money on the spot. It was impossible to misconceive the threat or to exaggerate the danger. The lad's heart failed. He stammered some excuses, counted out the sum, and saw his hateful visitors depart. No sooner were they gone than he hastened to confirm his doubts by a dozen unquestionable marks. He identified the girl he had jested with the day before. He saw with horror marks upon her body that might well betoken violence. A panic seized him, and he took refuge in his room. There he reflected at length over the discovery that he had made, considered soberly the bearing of Mr. K's instructions and the danger to himself of interference in so serious a business. And at last, in sore perplexity, determined to wait for the advice of his immediate superior, the class assistant. This was a young doctor, Wolf McFarlane, a high favorite among all the reckless students, clever, dissipated, and unscrupulous to the last degree. He had traveled and studied abroad. His manners were agreeable and a little forward. He was an authority on the stage, skillful on the ice or the links, with skate or golf club. He dressed with nice audacity. And to put the finishing touch upon his glory, he kept a gig and a strong trotting horse. With Fetz, he was on terms of intimacy. Indeed, their relative positions called for some community of life. And when subjects were scarce, the pair would drive far into the country in McFarland's gig, visit and desecrate some lonely graveyard and return before dawn with their booty to the door of the dissecting room. On that particular morning, McFarlane arrived somewhat earlier than his wont. Fetz heard him and met him on the stairs, told him his story, and showed him the cause of his alarm. McFarlane examined the marks on her body. Yes, he said with a nod. It looks fishy. Well, what should I do? asked Fetz. Do, repeated the other. Do you want to do anything? Least said, soonest mended, I should say. Someone else might recognize her, objected Fetz. She was well known as the Castle Rock. Well, we'll hope not, said McFarland. And if anybody does, well, you didn't, don't, you see? 
you don't, and there's an end. The fact is, this has been going on too long. Stir up the mud and you'll get Kay into the most unholy trouble. You'll be in a shocking box yourself. So will I, if you come to that. I should like to know how any one of us would look, or what the devil we should have to say for ourselves in any Christian witness box. For me, you know there's one thing certain. Practically speaking, all our subjects have been murdered. <laughs>